play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Ron Upshaw and Don O'Neill, otherwise known as Ron and Don. Oh, good afternoon, Seattle and Tacoma and Olympia and all our friends who live in Cedro Woolley. We got friends in Cedro Woolley. I have zero friends in Cedro Woolley. Ron and Don are longtime radio partners who spent decades moving around the country together, hosting all kinds of big market radio shows. They have since moved on to a new profession, but they are still working together and have been working together doing all different kinds of jobs since they were teenagers. What keeps two people working together for 40 years? We will discuss. Now, Ron and Don might be unfamiliar to some of you, but a lot of you first heard me on The Ron and Don Show, an afternoon drive news radio talk show that was on Cairo Radio in Seattle for 15 years. And I was a part of their show for nearly a decade. Today on the show, I chat with a 25-year-old guy from Traverse City, Michigan, who is trying to reclaim his hometown's lost Guinness World Record by making the world's largest cherry pie. And could you make it through a 50-course dinner? We'll talk about the pros and cons of fancy tasting menus. All of that is coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Ron and Don. Your story, I feel like, should be in the Wall Street Journal. It is so rare to have a pair of people who work together for decades, but in different fields. Like, it's one thing that, okay, we've been radio partners and we've moved from state to state. But can you start from the beginning, how you know each other, and then go through every job that you have worked at together through the past however many years? Okay, so I was in second grade with Don's little sister. Colleen, and he was simultaneously in fifth grade with my big sister, Leslie. So we'd known each other since I was in the second grade, Don's in the fifth grade. All the things we'd done together. So we worked at a youth group together. How old were you then? I would have been 15. Yeah. And then Ron and I had a band and he thought he was Bono. We did that. Our band has not played in a while, which is good. Uh, (laughs) Very good. We don't, we're we're not booked much. We clean carpets together. Uh, We would meet in the middle of the night and throw newspapers together. We had a car dealership together. And then I called Ron one day and I just said, you know, I hate selling cars. I was in my twenties. My mother had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. She sent me a letter I'd written myself when I was in sixth grade. I want to wake up a city. I want to talk about the Chicago Bears. I want to be on the radio. I want to make people laugh. I want to make people give. And I want to make people cry. And so I called Ron and I said, you know what? It's time to be Larry Lujak on WMAQ in Chicago. He's the only one that believed in it. But we finally found Tom Lee over at KJRM, mid-90s. That's and in Seattle. He, yeah, and he, he said, I don't have anything for you. And then he called me up. He said, I will let you guys do a segment on a Saturday night, which you know is throwaway garbage radio, yeah. from midnight to three in the morning, just so you have a tape that, that you can go out and shop. So we did that. 
phone lines at midnight were ringing. The next thing you know, we had the number one show on the, from on, midnight on to three a.m. Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> yeah, so Don and I would work for thirty three dollars a show. That's right. And- so you went from KJR in Seattle, then you went and did Raiders Radio in San Francisco. In San Francisco, and then where did you go from then there? Then we went to Phoenix. We were doing uh, one hundred four seven KZZP, Arizona's hit music channel. I'm <laughs> Jackie West, everybody. We talked just like this, and I bet you did too back in the day. Yes, I when did. You were in Sacramento on the B. <laughs> were you on the B? No, that was the newspaper I was on KFPK with Kitty O'Neill. Is that right? Yes. Coming up next, we got some Enrique Iglesias and your chance to win Britney Spears tickets. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I used to do eighties, nineties. And today, ninety-five so won the mix in Chico. <laughs> we did. Uh, so we were in Phoenix for a while until our program director was arrested for dealing cocaine. Oh, uh, is that the My Pillow guy? <laughs> <laughs> then we went to Dallas. Uh, and we were on um, the Cowboy Radio Network. The on Cowboy CBS. Radio Network, and Howard Stern was on that station. After Dallas, we came back to Seattle for a hot second. Seattle, we were on the buzz. Then we went to Grand Rapids. Then we were syndicated. We're in New Orleans. A little storm happens. New Orleans back to uh, Seattle, and here we are. Ron and Don left radio in 2018, and now co-host a podcast called Ron and Don Radio. They are also now real estate agents. But of course, they are still working as a team. Completely different work. Why yes. do you stay together? Like, why does this? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting I know. though. I know. It is like it's one thing to stay together as like a radio duo, but like you're selling cars, you're selling houses. Like, I think for most people that is unusual. Yeah, it is unusual. Well, it, when when the radio show ended, you know, we sort of processed losing that our career in different ways, and so we sort of there was a moment where we said. Well, we kind of left on top. Like, maybe that's it. We had a good run. Um, we did what we set out as two punk kids that had no idea what they were doing. We wanted to be on the radio. We did it. Had great ratings, and we had a blast. So like, maybe that's it. This is the end of the road. And we were fine with that. We were like, okay, cool. When I got my afternoons back, I could go pick up my son. I could engage with being a parent. I'm like... I don't want to give this time up because somebody else is raising my child. We love real estate. And I think for Ron and I, I understand his gifts, talents, and abilities, and they aren't mine. And I think he understands mine as well. So it really is the yin and a yang. We are better together and we love each other. I mean, I love that guy and he loves me and uh, we'll, we'll be here loving on each other, I think, and until it's all said and done. I practice his eulogy all the time. <laughs> I, have a, I have a shovel downstairs and I practice dumping dirt on his head. He's going to be the one to go first. And, and I practice all my friend's eulogies. I actually do. On a trail run, I think of all the things I'm going to say about my friends at their funeral because they're all going first. So, and I have a lot of great things I'm going to say at your funeral, Rachel. Just Thank so you. you. Know. Yeah. I don't want any dirt on my head, though. Okay. <laughs> That's right. You want to be in a body farm. I remember I you. I do. I want to be composted. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I don't spend that. any money on a box. <laughs> I don't want to be burned. So was there ever a moment that you thought, well, maybe we'll go off on our own? Or was it assumed that whatever we do next, we're going to do it as a team? No, we had that discussion. We had the discussion of going on their own. It was a huge undertaking to completely change careers learn a new skill set, basically get a master's degree in real estate contract law. I'm a managing broker now. Later in the show, we'll tell you how I ended up on Ron and Don's radio show. But since Don brought up eulogies, let's get to his last meal. Okay, Don, what would your last meal be? Yeah, Well, for me, I'm nostalgic and I like simple things. So I'm not as complicated as Ron. And my last meal reminds me of when I was 16 years old, had a paper route. Ron and I would meet in the middle of the night 
just in the middle of the night, I always got really hungry. So I used to go in this Circle K in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they would leave our, our papers. And I would walk in. I'd buy a quart of Borden's chocolate milk. I would also, at the time, you could find taco-flavored Doritos. Yes. For whatever reason, taco-flavored Doritos are now a special order, but they're very, very hard to find. But they are so delicious, you guys. Taco, they have I to can be, picture the bag right now from they, the 80s. They have to be taco-flavored. And then on top of that, I fell in love with Dolly Madison cherry pies they were about 49 cents with the cherry compote inside it's the same stuff you dump when you go camping and you get two pieces of white bread and you put the cherry compote in and you throw it in the fire and so i would sit there sometimes just as we're driving i would drink the chocolate milk i would eat the i would eat the dorito i can't believe i ate this way right (laughs) uh and i think because i think of the way that i eat now but what's really unique about that like i love cherry pie so much i could eat a whole cherry pie every I know you love cherry day pie, for yeah. The rest of my life. And what's what's really neat is I share my love for cherry pie now with my son who's 12. So on our birthdays every year, April 9th through April 14th, during that week, my friends know I love cherry pie. And I would say I probably have five or six different cherry pies that are just dropped off at my doorstep uh. during birthday week. So I try to share those cherry pies, but I will say this. Interesting. During- I've never gotten a slice of birthday <laughs> cherry pie. <laughs> Huh. Wonder why that is. Cherry pie from High Five Pie is pretty good. And 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 Rachel, I believe, has bought me some pie before. And yeah. and I have to say, we will sit down through the course of that week together. We'll consume a cherry pie. We'll drink some chocolate milk. And it really connects me to those fun times with Ron when I was going up and we were carefree. And that to me was a was a good meal that I used to to eat in the middle of the night. For his last meal, Don O'Neill wants chocolate milk, taco flavored Doritos, and cherry pie. Chocolate milk originated in Jamaica. Jamaicans have been mixing chocolate shavings, milk, and cinnamon together for centuries. Even Christopher Columbus made note of it when he landed in Jamaica in the late 1400s. Taco-flavored Doritos were created in 1967, years before Doritos were coated with nacho cheese dust. The taco flavor was the second variety of Doritos on the market, the first being plain tortilla chips. But today, we're gonna go deep on cherry pie. In 1990, a tiny town in British Columbia baked the world's largest cherry pie, stealing the Guinness World Record away from Traverse City, Michigan. But 33 years later, they want to win it back. We'll talk about the world's largest cherry pie on the other side of this quick break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. 
Don O'Neill loves cherry pie. He says he eats about five of them over the course of his birthday week every year. But five pies is nothing compared to what the Guinness Book of World Records has crowned the world's largest cherry pie. The world's largest cherry pie weighed in at 39,683 pounds and was built and baked in the small town of Oliver, British Columbia, Canada. That was in 1990, which coincidentally is the same year that Warren's hit song Cherry Pie came out. I happen to know this because I had Warren guitarist Joey Allen on another Cherry Pie episode featuring actor Jenny Slate. I'm not necessarily a cherry pie fan, and the reason why is because somebody at Columbia had the great idea to do cherry pie eating contests at every show. So they would take a band member to this cherry pie eating contest, and if you can imagine, you do you know one or two of those, and you start seeing what happens when people eat cherry pies. Eat them twice if you get my drift. It kind of looks like horror show when you see cherry pie coming out of people's noses and back through their mouths after they eat it kind of sours you on that lovely uh, dessert. I didn't dislike cherry pie at that point, but after all those cherry pie eating contests, I'm kind of like not so hip on the cherry pie. I'm more of an apple pie guy myself. To hear my whole interview with Joey, scroll back to 2018 and listen to my Jenny Slate episode. Okay, but back to the Guinness World Record. The original cherry pie record was set in 1976 in Charlevoix, Michigan. Their pie weighed over 17,000 pounds. And as the story goes, they mixed the dough for the crust in a cement mixer and used a helicopter to help lay out the lattice topping. 11 years later, in 1987, a new record was broken only about an hour south in Traverse City, Michigan, the cherry capital of the world. That pie weighed about 28,000 pounds, and the pie tin stretched 17 feet across. 35,000 people showed up to the event, and they ate the entire pie. In fact, they ran out of pie before everybody got a slice. But then, just three years later, in 1990, an even bigger pie was baked in Oliver, British Columbia. No, my name is uh, Bob Ellis. I live in Oliver, B.C. How were you affiliated with the record? I was uh, a member of the Oliver Rotary Club. If you come up and suggest an idea, you have to run with it. And so it became my baby. (laughs) So this was your idea? Yeah, it was my idea. Bob convinces Rotary Club that they should create the world's biggest cherry pie. Oliver is located in the Okanagan Valley, where they used to grow a lot of cherries. I took a recipe for a nine-inch cherry pie to a math teacher who was a member of the club. And I asked him, would he tell me what I needed for something that would be 20 feet in diameter and two feet deep? And it took him a while, but he figured it out. How much money did you have to raise to buy all the ingredients and to get the pan made? We didn't have to spend a penny. I had to go in cold on the phone, explain what we were doing. Uh, Would you like to donate 3,500 pounds of sugar to this? And, you know... Everybody responded. The guy who volunteered to make the pie pan supplied his own steel. And after the record was broken, he took it back, melted it down and repurposed the steel. In Oliver's, is there any place where people can see that this record happened? Is it something that people talk about? Is it a part of the town's image? No, I, you know, we get a lot of new people moving in and most people don't even know. 
Since we did this, quite a few of the fellows pass away. But in Traverse City, Michigan, they still have their massive pie tin on display. Right on the side of the road with a nice little area for people to pull off and take pictures in. And almost every time you pass, there's always people out taking photos. That's Garrett Porter. I am from Traverse City, Michigan, which is also the cherry capital of the world. And I am spearheading, along with the rest of the Big Pie Project team, the world's largest cherry pie to come back to the cherry capital of the world and bring that title back home. The idea of baking a 50,000 pound pie, how do you even bake it? Is there an oven? Tell me each step. Like, how do you make the crust? How do you make the filling? Um, You can't just go and buy cherry pie filling off the shelf and use big tubs of that. Everything has to be um, made specifically for this pie. And of course, being the cherry capital of the world, we want to support the local uh, northern Michigan cherry farmers. So yeah, it starts with getting enough uh, cherry pie filling. In order to fill up this entire tin, you need a top and a bottom crust. Lattice crust is currently our plan for the top crust. And then you have to build a brick oven and get you know propane burners underneath, a series of burners with circulation. And a pie this size, a 50,000 pound pie, will take anywhere from 8 to 12 hours to get up to temperature in order to be safe for serving and making sure that everything goes flawlessly because one small hiccup could basically ruin the whole thing and and make all of the work not really worth it. Garrett and his crew have spent the last year trying to raise $50,000. And that $50,000 just makes up the raw materials that can't really be uh, donated by any of the local Traverse City companies. So stainless steel alone, food-grade stainless steel that we need to make this pie tin is 30000 alone. <laughs> and then you have about $10,000 to get the Guinness uh, Book of World Records here in order to verify the pie. And so that basically right there in those two categories makes up about $40,000 of the 50000 that we're trying to raise. Okay, wait, the Guinness World Records, they charge $10,000 to send someone out. I read it's called the adjudicator. <laughs> what is that money going towards? You know, I'm not really sure, Rach. I was quite um, shocked by that number as well. But if we want to do it and we want to get the title and we want to get the official Guinness Book of World Records title back in Traverse City, we, there's really no way around it, unfortunately. And yeah, that's the fee that comes along. And that's, I don't even believe that's including like the travel and the lodging for the adjudicator that has to be wow. on site. What a racket, as the old folks might say. That's crazy. That's right. So far, they have only raised about $10,000. We want to give back to the community. We don't want to just ask for $50,000. So our whole plan with this is we expect about 40,000 people to show up to uh, eat a slice of the world's largest cherry pie. And we are going to do a small admission into the event where there will be live music and ice cream and cherry vendors. Once you pay your uh, 3 to $5 admission to get in, you can have as much pie as you'd like. Because just like the previous uh, world record holders, we do not want any pie to go to waste. By the end of the event, we hope to raise over $200,000 for the community of Traverse City, which will all be dumped right back in to area nonprofits. I have a big question for you. Back to Bob. Did you know that Traverse City is trying to take the record back? Uh, somebody mentioned that they probably would, but uh, I really don't care. I mean, records are meant to be broken, and that's fine. If they could do it, good luck to them. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't sound like you would mind if they broke the record. I guess it's been a while, right? It's been 33 years. Yeah, no, I, I mean, good heavens, as I say, all records are meant to be broken. So, no, 
Bob, you're so nice. I was trying to have this big controversy here. And now it's just like, it's a, just a nice Canadian guy who hopes for the best. <laughs> I mean, I'm 82, so I'm not, I'm not about to start doing something like that. <laughs> and Garrett is 25 years old. He wasn't even born when any of the previous records were set. He's a young guy, is he? By the way, if you wanted to pass on my email address to the guy that's trying to do this, I don't mind corresponding with him. Oh, that's so nice of you. I will. I'll send him a message. I'm sure he would love to chat with you regardless. He's a really, really sweet guy. That's good. And the last question is the most basic and kind of dumb, but um, what is your opinion of cherry pie? I feel like it's a little bit of a controversial pie. Some people kind of love it or hate it. Yes, we love cherry pie. (laughs) There are so many incredible cherry pie bakers in the Northern Michigan area and uh, the entire Big Pie Project team can't get enough cherry pie, especially growing up in the cherry capital of the world. It would kind of be wrong to not like cherry pie if you live in Traverse City. Well, there's such a big difference between having a cherry pie with fresh local cherries and opening up a can. I think that's where the controversy comes in because the cherry pie filling in a can is so gloopy, kind of overly sweet. Yes, if you don't like cherry pie, I think you need to take a trip out to Traverse City in the summer. Come to the world's largest cherry pie event. Change your mind forever. What is your opinion? Do you like cherry pie? I'm not a cherry pie. Like, I mean, I eat cherry pie, but it, it, like, if there's a selection of pies, it'll be way down on the list. The same with apple and pumpkin. I don't like pumpkin. You know, give me raisin pie and pecan pie and blueberry pie and blackberry pie. Any other pie. <laughs> Any other pie. Yeah. I've never heard of a raisin pie before. Is that something that's no. traditional? I don't know about traditional, but uh, I mean, if you look online, the recipes for raisin pies. Will Bob commission the world's largest raisin pie? Only time will tell. But for now, if you'd like to donate to Traverse City's Cherry Pie Fund, you can find a link in the show notes. We'll be back after the break with Ron Upshaw's Last Meal. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. All right, we're back with Ron Upshaw's Last Meal. Okay, Rachel, I've thought a lot about this because I have listened to every single episode of the Your Last Meal podcast, Thanks, and, including stuff off the record that probably has never even reached the air. Whoa. Like back in the Where'd day. Where'd you get that? When you would take me <laughs> in the studio and, and I would preview stuff. My last meal, and I'm hoping that you do a deep dive on this, would be an assemblage of tasting menus. I love a couple times a year of finding a tasting menu. When I go to a restaurant, whether I've been to like Jose Andreas tasting menus and sushi tasting menus, I've done them in Europe and that like Michelin rated places and just hole in the wall places. When you have a chef who can tell a story 
through like eight or nine courses. And then there's the beverage pairings and the whole thing. That's my jam. Mm. So my last meal would be kitchen stadium style, get like Gordon Ramsay and Jose Andreas and the people from Canlis and like whoever's doing these tasting menus, a top sushi guy and everybody competes with their tasting menu. I just did Tomo down in Burien. Their little, I think it was like a six course tasting menu. It's always delightful. You're always surprised. It's the first time I ever ate ants in Mexico oh, yeah. at Pujol, which was a top 10 restaurant in the world. I never would have ordered that if I wouldn't have done the tasting menu. Not that I'd order it again, but I'm glad that I experienced it. So um, my last meal would be the battle of the tasting menus. And I want to know when it started. How long is this a thousand year tradition? Has it just started? Like I have no idea who invented the tasting menu. So when you say the battle, do you want to eat the winning tasting menu or you want to eat all of them? Uh, since my last meal, like it'll be a week long event of okay. me eating one tasting menu after the next. And then I will proclaim <laughs> who the greatest tasting menu in the world is. I think this says a lot about your personality because I like a lot of control over what I'm eating. Not because I'm picky at all. I just really like to, I want to have this and I'm going to read this. A tasting menu is you're basically letting the chef prepare and you're not ordering off the menu really. So this is the thing I've talked about of why I love food so much is in, in this sort of arena with the tasting menus. It's the only thing I can think of, and maybe there's one that I can't think of, where you can go experience a, a world-class person at their profession, like that's been independently judged as world-class for a couple hundred bucks. Like I couldn't show up at the NFL and go, hey, I want to take a couple passes from uh, the QB. Here's a $200. They're like, get the hell out of here. Like I can't go to the airport and be like, yeah, I'd like to fly with the best test pilot. Here's a couple hundred bucks. But in with the food thing, you can be like, this is rated the best restaurant in the world. I can attend there and partake. And like the one I just did a tasting menu down in the Bay Area, I'm interacting with the chef. Like he's telling me what he's doing. He's showing me what he's doing. I asked him about what temperature did you do that at? And like he's, he was engaging with us. You can't, there's nowhere else you can do that. What was your favorite tasting menu? Can you name some specific dishes? Um, Jose Andreas did a tasting menu in, in one of his Las Vegas properties that was treating the same ingredients in a Spanish way and a Chinese way. So it's called China Poblano. Wow. And you did cocktails as well. So he would say, first course is pork. So here's the treatment in, in Chinese food. Here's the treatment in Spanish food. Here are two cocktails. And then they'd go, course number two is a, is a dumpling style dish. Mm. Here's how they do it in Spain. Here's how they, and so you went through the whole tasting menu. I think it was a total of 10 dishes. So five of each. And it was phenomenal. My, my second favorite one was Pujol in Mexico City. It was, I think at the time, ranked seventh in the world. And it was phenomenal. Like it was a, an expression of Mesoamerican food. So of like the food before the Spaniards came to Mexico City. And so you had the, the ant dish with the corn and it was really well done, really elegant, great beverages, great pairings. And it really told a story of like, wow, this is all food that happened before the Spanish arrived in Mexico. Yeah. So I've had about 150 people on the show and people who are quite famous, make a lot of money. You have the fanciest last meal of Anybody? He does? Yes. <laughs> no one. No one has ever wanted a fancy meal like that. <laughs> People are always like, "I want my mother's 
you know, bread and butter, like just a humble memory. And Ron's like, no, I want a $300 tasting menu with gold on it. Yeah. You're darn yeah. right. I, I, I have to say, we went to a Mission Star restaurant with your brother. Uh, and we were overseas. In Paris. Yeah. It was actually a bib gourmand. So yeah. one step below. And, and it was Star. interesting because his brother and I, we hated it. We didn't understand it why oh. it was a Michelin restaurant. And we were just like, hey, this porridge we're having or whatever. Let's just go get some pizza and, and, and drink some beers. But I have to say the experience of going there and watching Ron engage in that, it's really fun to watch. It's really unique to watch. To see him not only explore other countries, but other menus, other dishes, other cultures, and then want to share that with people. Like yeah. he's really passionate about it. That 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 was really cool to watch. But what sure. did you hate about that experience in the food? You know, I just I I didn't get it. And when I don't get something, it used to be I would just kind of shut down and I don't get it. And let's go eat pizza and drink beer and all that. I, I would say now, fast forward, because I cook more. I'm trying to be more open so that uh -huh. I can learn. So the good news is your palate can change yeah. as long as you remain open. And I haven't always been open. And, that, and that's the one thing that I really appreciate about you and appreciate about Ron. For his last meal, Ron wants a multi-course chef's tasting menu. As far as the history of tasting menus, royalty and rich folks in places like France have been serving multi-course feasts for centuries. But if we're talking about restaurant tasting menus, it was chefs in the 1990s, like Thomas Keller at the French Laundry, who kicked off the modern trend. What is a tasting menu? So a tasting menu kind of gives you a taster of what a chef is about. So in many cases, they would start out with a few little amuse-bouche. And the courses, they do tend to be a little bit smaller, 8, 10, 12, even up to 50 courses. So the whole purpose of a tasting menu really is to give you a story of what a chef is about, what a restaurant is about through food. That's Hong Kong-based food and culture writer Charmaine Mock. Back in June, she wrote an article for the South China Morning Post titled, Are Tasting Menus Worth It? Not the ones that run for hours on end and make you feel as if you've been taken hostage. And there are lots of articles like these online. Food writers complaining that tasting menus have gotten way too long, that servers' explanations of the dishes are way too detailed. Charmaine says a short tasting menu can be great. If you go to a nice restaurant, sometimes you don't really know what you want. And actually, from a chef's point of view, a tasting menu is perfect. They can control exactly what they're making. There's no choice given to the diner, but it also gives the diner the chance to really just sit back, relax, and not really think about anything. Because I don't know about you, but I sometimes just get decision fatigue. So this really was a nice format to have, but you kind of see the tasting menu evolving. It becomes lengthier. It becomes more complicated. The number of courses just balloons from six to eight, which I think is a reasonable number, to mm -hmm. like the 50s. You have El Bui, who was famous for creating incredibly long tasting menus. And their definition of a course may be just one bite, but still you're going to have like a 50, 60 course meal. So I think people really started to realize then that, well, at what point does a tasting menu serve its purpose? A menu that can be enjoyed, that can tell a chef's story. And then now it's become... Am I just easing a chef's ego? It's kind of like when you have someone who's talking too much and you're like, please stop. Keep the story short. I don't need to hear any more. You have shown me exactly what you're about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So is one of the problems that you don't know how long it's going to last? Because I mean, many people could argue that this is like a very bougie complaint. It's like, oh, no, my (laughs) $300 dinner. I'm so upset because it took so long. Like, you know, there's worse (laughs) problems. You didn't have to go. You know, you could have gone anywhere to eat and you chose it. Is it do people just feel like they don't know what's coming and then they feel trapped? Absolutely. I think that nowadays some restaurants do warn you, you know, our menu is to be enjoyed within a two to three hour time frame. You do have that element of you signed up for this. As a food writer, you know, we are very privileged and it is from a very privileged point of view that I can say like, I am so tired of tasting menus. (laughs) Uh, It does seem very uh, first world problem. Yeah, I was reading an article about tasting menus and people were also complaining that, you know, the menu is just so basic. They just add in luxury items like caviar Mm. and Wagyu just to bring the price up. And I just thought, oh, God, this is the first world thing, too, where they're complaining that they're getting caviar and Wagyu. So it's an interesting topic because it really is an elite experience that I don't think most people experience. Uh, Yet there are so many articles about tasting menus right now. If you look online, like from this year, even one of the longest tasting menus in the world right now is at Alchemist, a two Michelin star restaurant in Copenhagen. It's 50 courses. They call them impressions. They're fleeting, you know, they kind of arrive and you consume it and then it's gone. So little impressions. Chef Rasmus Monk, he suggests that this menu lasts between four to six hours. They're kind of known for kind of like avant-garde takes on classic dishes. So they have this thing called the sunburnt bikini, the Spanish sandwich, the ham and cheese. And it's kind of reimagined into this sphere made of mochi dough. So you kind of have little crazy things like that. So when I asked Rasmus about his whole concept. He was saying, you know, the experience at Alchemist isn't just a dinner. It involves performance, interaction, and visual technology. Our guests are prepared and expect a lengthy menu. And he also goes on to say a big part of the eating experience is therefore also discussing and discovering different issues like plastic pollution, food waste, social injustice, and topics like organ donation or child labor in the chocolate industry. So I think, you know, he's trying to tell stories and he's trying to make people think through each of the courses. I think he's trying to get conversations going with four to six hours. I think there will be a need for uh, conversation starters. That is so bizarre, though. Organ donation. It's also interesting. And, you know, I wonder if this goes back to the chef's ego, because it sounds like not only is he designing exactly what you're going to eat, but it sounds like he also wants to tell you what the conversation topics are going to be as well. So it's almost like a salon. So it's like a really, really, really curated experience. It is a mind massage. You know, it's it's a lot. It also costs a lot. According to their website, a meal at Alchemist costs the equivalent of 718 American dollars. If you want the wine pairings, the coffee, the tea, and the digestif, the meal is $2,145 per person. Let's get back to Ron and Don. Ron, you've been going on these pizza crawls with your brother. Your brother lives in New Mexico, and you've been meeting up kind of all over the country and a little bit the world. So what started that, and where's all the cities that you've eaten pizza in so far? Uh, my brother is a lifelong pizza fanatic, and everybody's always like, oh, I like pizza. He's read every book. 
Uh, he studies the lists when they come out. If, if you're not into pizza culture, they public, like everyone has a list. New York Times has a list. A couple years ago, um, he was making lots of pizzas, had an uni pizza oven. It's like, I want to go and start visiting these famous cities. And so we've been to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, New York. We've done San Francisco. We just did Seattle and Portland, and, and you helped us out on the Seattle one. Uh, we've done Rome. We did Naples, Italy. We did Pepe and Grane, which is the number one pizzeria in the world outside of Naples. We have a Chicago, Detroit trip planned. And, and, really I, and I have to say, on Ron's Big Green Egg, he has perfected the art of making a pizza on a pizza stone. The pizza pie? Has he ever had you over for a pizza yeah. party? Yeah, we had a pizza party. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but. Sorry, Ron. Ron's still dealing with the Trader Joe's dough. Okay? That's fair. I, I have not mastered dough. It's okay. I haven't mastered the dough. Oh, a dough snob. Challenge. I challenge you, Ron, to move away from the Trader Joe's dough. Yeah, I am a dough snob. Yeah. Yeah. What's your moisture content? You know, like you got to let it sit and ferment for two days. You got to get that crumb structure built I up. I know. You do a yeah. better dough for sure. I know. <laughs> what dish do you think your son will remember you by? You know, I think for us, it's probably my 12-hour ribs. And a number of years ago, I went and got a big green egg. And I decided what I wanted to do was learn to cook on this thing, right? Because there's a lot of direct cooking, indirect cooking. You can get the big green egg uh, 1,100, 1,200 degrees. So you do something called turbo cooking in the big green egg. So I have to say, I have burned up a lot of good meat in the, in the big green egg <laughs> over the years. But the one thing that I've gotten really good at, and it starts the night before, and he and I are a part of it, and we will go and we will pick up our ribs at the butcher shop, and then we'll prepare the ribs, and we'll spend some time rubbing lots of mustard on those the night before. I will get the big green egg going probably about five in the morning. So it's kind of neat to get up and it's dark out and you're, you're basically building a fire in your big green egg. And then as the flame is beginning to settle, uh, you'll put the ribs on. And I roll my ribs probably at about anywhere between 180 and 225. So just really low and slow. And then I know that friends are coming over, right? Or then I know I'm going to feed the neighborhood today, which I do a lot. So when my neighbors smell the big green egg, they'll be like, hey, Kevin uh, from <laughs> next door. Dinner. Right, right. So, so, so then we're anticipating a celebration. Uh, friends and family may be coming over. And, and my son and I, from the night before to the day that we cook together, I think that'll be a memory that we always have. Uh, and, and I have to say the ribs... If, if I was going to make a last meal for you and I was going to do my very best with lots of love and time, it, it, would, it would probably be those, it would probably be those ribs. So I think he'll remember that. And then I think also during our birthday week, we always take a trip somewhere. So like we went to New York this year, we went on tour, we had a great time and you believe it or not, we found some cherry pie while we were in New York as well. Ah! Yeah. Let me ask you a question. If you were asked to prepare a last meal for someone, mm. and it's going to be the greatest dish that you make right now, Ron. What would it be? What would you What would you prepare for my last meal or or Rachel's last meal? What What What's your thing? That's so hard. I mean, it's the simplest thing I make, but people love it when I make homemade pozole. Like it's a very straightforward dish from New Mexico. It's got hominy and pork. Hominy, 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 and it in, in a queso fresco. Like it's very simple homemade tortillas. People love it. You have to make a pretty good uh, tri-tip on the big green egg. You do. Yeah. That people really liked. 
I mean, probably one of those, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Oh, that's so hard. Some of the things that I really like that I make, they don't feel like something I would serve for a last meal. You know, I would probably make a really good grilled cheese sandwich, mm-hmm. like the crispiest buttery bread and like in the old Kraft Singles commercial where you pull it apart and has that big cheese pull because, oh, I'm, I'm like my mouth right now. I'm like watering just thinking about it. I think everybody loves a grilled cheese and something like that is just so satisfying. You have like the crunchy and the cheesy. I always feel loved by you when you make matzo ball soup for me. Oh, thanks. That, that feels, is a good, that it, is a good one. It feels like a lot of momentum behind it. You know what I mean? There's a lot yes. of, it's a lot, you're bringing a lot to the figurative table. What I want to try making because um, I'm friends with the woman who owned the Fuss Cyclo restaurants and she's married to an Israeli. And I was always saying, why don't you make matzo ball pho soup? Like put the matzo balls yeah. in the pho. I really want to like make Like Ivan, Ivan Raman does that. He does? Yes. Okay. There goes my idea. <laughs> <laughs> he does that. What is it called? Schmaltz? Yeah. He does the Schmaltz Raman. Yeah. But he doesn't put matzo balls in it, does he? I don't think he puts Not matzo balls restaurant. in it. But the, I've been but, to his restaurant. But the schmaltz, the, the schmaltz but he does and the, the broth. chicken. Yeah, the chicken ramen. Yeah. And that was Ron Upshaw and Don O'Neill's last meal. If you stick around after the credits and after the bloopers, you can hear the story of how I found my way onto the Ron and Don show. It involves Tom Cruise, a helicopter, a red carpet, and a Skype call to Japan. You can find Ron and Don Radio on your podcast app or find a link in the show notes, which will also take you to their real estate page. Thanks to Bob Ellis up in Oliver, BC, Canada. People said, well, what did you do with the leftover pie? <laughs> I had to tell them we got the truck that, you know, pumps out the septic tanks. And they, <laughs> they had, I mean, what are we going to do with it? You know, I mean, it's still three quarters full. So we just had it pumped out and it went to the dump. Oh, no. Thanks to Garrett Porter in Traverse City, Michigan. Garrett and his brother Dakota started a company called Afterglow when he was only 13 years old and his brother was 16. They make and sell LED lights for snowboards and surfboards so people can ride after dark. And 12 years later, they're still running the company. We did go on Shark Tank last year, season 14, episode 7, and we secured a deal with Robert Hershevek. So we are super fortunate for everything that has come our way for that. It's kind of all tied in with the big pie because we know that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the amazing support we received from the Traverse City community back when we were so young. Thanks to Charmaine Mock, Deputy Culture Editor for South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Your Last Meal was created and produced by me and is a product of Cascade Public Media. With special thanks to Maliha Sayed and Sarah Bernard, theme music by Prom Queen. If you like the show, make sure and give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. There is a link in the show notes to do that. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I am Hello Rachel Bell. I just got back from a two-week van road trip, a hiking trip through the Canadian Rockies and uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. I posted a bunch of pictures of all of the camping meals that I made. So if you're into that kind of thing, check it out. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. We're just taking some pictures while we're talking here. (laughs) 
And now, here's the story of how I ended up on The Ron and Don Show. For those of you who don't know, I was a news radio reporter and feature reporter for 20 years. I just left my last radio job in November to focus on this podcast full time. Here is Ron Upshaw to kick off the story. We went into the program managers and the owners of the station. We're like, we need more diversity on our show. We want to include women. We would like to include other Jews. viewpoints. Jews. <laughs> 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 you know, people of color. Like we, we live in a, in a city that's very progressive and very diverse. And we would like to do that. And so around about that time, you were in the newsroom, but you were doing news stories. And I don't remember what we, we just had you on to do some story. I don't, do you remember what the oh, first yeah. story was? No, okay. I remember so clearly because, so yeah, I was just a regular reporter, like a hard news reporter, but there was this contest uh, that was put on by Tom Cruise for the Mission Impossible movie that was out at that time. I think this was in 2007 or 2008. And the winner would win a visit from Tom Cruise would come to your mall and then you'd get to watch the movie with him. And the person who won this contest uh, is from Aberdeen. So Cairo <laughs> sent me out to Aberdeen, you know, home of Kurt Cobain. Right. So I get there and I'm in the parking lot and there's hundreds of people. And then there's this red rope. And then there's like this, you know, young dorky guy who won the contest. And very dramatically, a helicopter comes. And that's how Tom Cruise, you know, is like coming down the ladder, like Mission Impossible to come to this event. And the big surprise of the event was that Katie Holmes was there because nice. they had just started dating and everyone was going crazy. I so, totally remember this now, the helicopter landing. I remember. Yeah. And so I went on your show and I don't know if I'd been on your show before, but if I had, it would always be about court cases or murders or something. But I was reporting live from the red carpet and interviewing all these women who were screaming and like, I don't care how short he is. I didn't want to marry him. And after we did this really fun segment, you came to me and you went to management and you said, she should be doing more. She has more of a personality than you're letting her have doing. Because remember how I used to talk dumpster on the radio? Dumpster fires. I'm Rachel Bell at oh my the God. dumpster fire. <laughs> and so it was that story. So ended up leaving in 2008. I and just as real Real quick, but my memory of that is you got once we sort of had some of those moments and you knew what how fun it could be. Yeah, you got real despondent over them shoehorning you into the same type of story. Go cover this case. There's a car crash. There's a fire. There's a murder. And you were like, I don't want to do these stories anymore. Well, it was depressing. I mean, to go way back. I mean, the reason I got into this industry in the first place was kind of by accident. I was never a person who was into news. I wanted to be a movie director. And in college, they gave me an internship at a news radio station. And my first day there, I felt like, oh my God, these are my people. Everyone had a dark sense of humor. Everybody was strange. You could be your complete self. Everybody was strange. Everybody, I mean, right? Like Those everyone. people. Yes. Like everyone. Had, so every newsroom I worked in, it was the same thing. Like all these weirdo misfits with strange senses of humor is where I always thought you grew up and you went to work and you had to have this different personality and you put your shoulder pads on and, you know, you're carrying your uh, pumps to the subway with your sneakers on. And it wasn't like that. And so I got into news for the people and then just covered my murders and stuff. And it just didn't match my so personality. I remember you came, we went out to lunch and you were like, I'm going to move to Japan and teach English. And I was like, what? Like it came out of left field to me, but that's what you did. Yeah, that's what I did. And then one day I got a Skype from you guys. <laughs> and I was getting ready to come back and I'd already actually accepted a job at my old radio station in Sacramento. And you asked me if I wanted to be on the show and you said, we have a name for it. It's Ring My Bell. We have a song, the Ring My Bell disco song. Right. And I don't know if I said this or I thought it, but I was like, 
that is so cheesy. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, I don't want to do that at all. Well, the, behind the scenes, and I think people, this would be interesting to people, is Don and I kind of had to put our foot down on the role because, again, we went into management and we're like, we want Rachel Bell on our show and she's just going to be on our show. And they were like, no. And then when we looked at the numbers, they said, there just weren't a lot of women listening to this radio show. And what Ron and I learned through doing rock radio, top 40 radio, even sports radio, if you provide kind of an on-ramp for women to participate in the show, if they can hear other women's voices, not only do they feel included, but men want to hear the voices of other women as well. And I remember going up to Carl Gardner, I give him a lot of credit, when we wanted to go and hire you. And he said, you know what? He said three things. Number one, I know she's good. Number two, we don't have the money. And number three, I don't get her. I do not get her. I said, why don't you then dip into our contracts coming up, dip into our contract and pull the money out of that because we think she's so important to the sustainability of our show and women like her. They didn't dip deep, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so so, so any, anyway, Carl worked to find the money. And then I said, it is important, Carl. You're, you're a 60-year-old male, and it's good that you don't get her, right? And, and he looked at me, and he goes, you know what? You're right. What, what was your relationship with him after that? Because he, he became a fan of yours, even though he didn't get you, and it took some time. But when he left the radio show, he was very enamored by your talent. He really was. You know what's funny about that is, you know, I think he's retired now. He's retired, yeah. And he comments on a lot of my Instagram posts and cool. writes the cutest things. And he sends me private messages and he writes, love you and things like that. That's and it's awesome. so sweet. And <laughs> yeah. I actually haven't spoken to him in years, but he was a really good guy. 